0: The thing that is, is creating this destruction, which is the, the decades long of inflationary monetary policy, has actually sowed the seed of opportunity to counter it, and I think that counter is Bitcoin.
1: Hello there from Bedford. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Kraken, the best place to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got a monster of a show got an interview with Preston Pish to discuss why now Bitcoin is more important than ever. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors and make sure you do check them out. It is because of the sponsors that I get to do this twice a week. So first up we have my newest sponsor, Casa, the best in Bitcoin security, and I have signed up. I am now a paying customer of Casa. I rejected a free account. I wanted to experience being a customer and weigh up the cost value of the product. And I've been through my setup with the team and it could not have been smoother. Security is something which has been nagging me. So being a Casa customer has given me so much peace of mind that I won't lose my Bitcoin with some stupid mistake or that someone can steal it from me. I signed up as a Casa Platinum customer, which is $150 a month, but they do have a gold option, which is $10 a month, which will give you a more robust security protection for your Bitcoin. With a single hardware wallet, you can get triple the security protecting your Bitcoin. So it really is a no-brainer to try it out, and Casa is offering a free one-month trial on of their gold product, which you can find out more about at trial.keys.casa. If you are interested in becoming a platinum or diamond customer, then just head over to keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. And also, Sportsbet. Have you checked out Sportsbet yet? Did you join in with the poker tournament on Sunday? I think I came around 30th. Yeah, I got knocked out eventually with a I think it was of the Jack coin suited. Anyway, it was fun. I hope you enjoyed it. They are the best place for online gaming and they do accept Bitcoin. This is why I love Sports Bet. And also, the long wait is over. Your champions from the Premier League, Serie A, and La Liga are all returning to the big stage. Damn, it's really suck not having football around. But we can finally watch Liverpool march home as champions. And I've also placed my first bet. I put on a double. I put on 500,000 sats for Liverpool to beat Everton and Tottenham to lose to United, which I think is a pretty much nailed on guaranteed win. But also, with sportsbet.io, you have a chance to win big. You can take part in their weekly leaderboard promotion, where you can win a signed Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo shirt, claim cash prizes and claim free bets for four weeks in a row. If you want to find out more, head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Okay, so on to the show today, and I have Preston Pish on talking about why Bitcoin's time is right now. Now, Preston is someone I have followed on Twitter for a little while, and he's always dropping finance and economic bombs. So I was really glad to finally get him on the show, and it actually turned out to be one of the favorite shows that I've done in quite some time. We are living through unprecedented times right now. With the pandemic, the lockdowns, the riots, it's a pretty scary time and definitely the craziest time that I can ever remember. With both the social unrest and the global economic outlook, the world is looking a pretty precarious place in many ways but also good in others look it's not all negative but there is some weird and bizarre stuff going on especially with the stock markets doing so well following the fall in March the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones which are two indicators of the general state of the market are up 40% since March and I think a lot of us are thinking what the fuck is going on here Some people have suggested that we could be witnessing the start of the collapse of sovereign currencies. And a specific example that people have used is citing the stock market pump in Venezuela whilst they were going through a hyperinflationary event. So, all these combined events are they a perfect storm for Bitcoin? It's definitely an interesting time. I'm definitely glad that part of my wealth is stored in Bitcoin. And me and Preston get into all of this. We discuss the current state of the global macroeconomy, what makes Bitcoin important, and deflationary versus inflationary systems. So I hope you enjoyed this one. I really, really did. And if you've got any questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at did.com. If you haven't checked out my other show, Defiance, I've got this series about Stephen Mnuchin, which is going out at the moment. Two parts are currently out part one, which is about friends with benefits, and part two is his role at One West Bank and creating a foreclosure machine part three, which is going to be coming out, I think, on Thursday. So if you want to check that out, please head over to defiance.news. And as I said, if you've got any questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at com. Morning. Preston, how are you, man? Pretty, pretty early where you are.
0: Peter, how you doing, man? It's uh, It's been a long time. I've never really had the opportunity to chat with you, so I'm excited to uh, do this.
1: I know. Like, I see you all the time on Twitter dropping really really interesting financial knowledge bombs i've listened to your podcast in the past i know you're there and like i can't i can't believe we haven't connected before but i'm glad we're doing it and i think we're doing it probably at the perfect time right
0: we are doing it at the perfect time
1: perfect time everything is fucked up right now everything's going crazy and look i always want to learn from my guests and you're a traditional finance guy right but for people who don't know you let's i don't often do this but i I want i want the backstory on you because it's going to Direct some of my questions. Give me, give me the Preston backstory.
0: <laughs> uh so going way back. So uh, I've always been a math guy. Really love doing math, and so I did engineering for my undergrad. I did aerospace engineering in my undergrad. Uh, so I went to a military school, and you know, upon graduation, you get commissioned into the army. So I was like, well, if I want to do something, I better do something that's fun. So. I became a, an attack helicopter pilot after I graduated. Well, you're not really using. That's fucking cool. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, it was it was absolutely incredible. Like
1: Air- was it like Airwolf?
0: <laughs> yeah, minus all the the, the corny scenes. <laughs> oh man, that's. But cool. yeah, so it was really neat. But I wasn't doing any type of you know, although my degree was in in aero engineering, I didn't necessarily use that whenever I was flying in the army. I mean, you're not really doing any of those things. So for me to scratch the itch, I I started really getting interested in investing because I always felt like there was some type of mathematical way to determine the value of a company. And so that led me to Warren Buffett and this whole Ben Graham approach to investing where they're calculating the intrinsic values of businesses and then you know, if they think the value is a hundred bucks and it's trading at 50, well, then they start loading up on it. So I started really getting deep into this stuff because I found it just fascinating and, and like a really difficult puzzle that you're always trying to solve. And, you know, it led to me writing a book about it. It led to me doing the podcast about doing valuations on businesses and constantly doing those updates and talking about which companies look good in the market and and whatnot. Which then led to me really getting a fascination with macroeconomics, and then studying some of the greats that have ma- made all their money in macro, like I like Ray Dalio and some of those folks, and and here I am. So it's been kind of a cool journey, but
1: and you get the Bitcoin thing, and I've noticed amongst the finance dudes, like like my background isn't finance, my whole background has been creative. I'm from the world of advertising, right? My brain just thinks in colors, of, colors and pictures. And uh, that's why doing this podcast for me has been really interesting, because so much of it is tech and economics. And they're both really difficult subjects for me. They just, they don't come to me naturally. But I have noticed that in my time in Bitcoin, there's more of these finance dudes like yourself, like Rao Powell. Dan Tapero, I always pronounce his name wrong. Uh, but there's like finance guys who kind of get Bitcoin, right? And then there's finance guys who don't get Bitcoin. And it's kind of binary. What 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 do you think is going on there? Like, I mean, I've got my view, right? I just think some of them either haven't spent enough time looking at it, or look, they don't have the incentive. Like, I have the incentive to get Bitcoin because I'm not a rich dude. Like, I don't have a lot of money. If Bitcoin works out, my pension's going to be great. So I have an incentive to learn about it. If you're worth like. Billions and fucking billions. Have you really got an incentive?
0: No, and I think you highlight a great point there. I think the other thing that is a key distinction that I've noticed, at least in the finance realm, is the macro guys seem to be much more open to the idea of it than value investors or momentum investors or people that are really kind of just looking at individual companies just from like an equity standpoint or even in the bond market. Because think about it. These guys in the bond market since 81 literally could have just fallen asleep since 1981 and if they had a long long duration bond i mean they murdered it they didn't even have to try so i think that's probably why you're seeing a lot of the macro guys come to it first because they're looking at the systematic piece to the global economy and they're saying hey this is beyond broke this is like systematic nuclear reactor meltdown broke And so I think they're searching for, okay, well then what, what are some options out there? Like how could this potentially work itself out? And I think that's why you're seeing guys like Dan and, and Raul. And there's a lot of others. Uh, Like I just talked with uh, Luke Roman and Grant Williams. Grant Williams is the other founder of real vision with Raul. And they're both like, yeah, like we don't really understand. It was their comment, but do we think you should own it? Yeah, we think you should own it. We just think that you should listen to other people that know more about it, and so then, I guess whenever I hear things like that from two really smart dudes, really smart macro guys right i'm I'm thinking to myself, well, what is it that they're not understanding and I think it really gets into the technical side of the protocol, like the two week difficulty adjustment. how does that harmonize with the four year having cycle and and how How are they working together? And all of those things, I think people just look at it and then then you get into the encryption side of it, and they're saying, well, atomic swaps and like all this other stuff that you can that you can see from afar on Twitter, and they're using all these fancy names, and they're just like, My God, well, I, I just don't understand all that. But if it if it is actually pegging money and there's a a scarcity to it well then there's probably something there it's pretty much i think how they're they're not willing to step into it further than that
1: yeah it's funny you should say that i was talking to my son about it yesterday he's 16 and he's just starting to show a little bit of interest in money yeah you know, he said to me because uh, he, he's pretty good at saving his christmas and birthday monies right he puts a bit of way here or there and yeah he's got himself to the stage where he's got he's got about a thousand pounds saved right he's got a little bit in his paypal account a bit of cash and he just he opened himself up a bank account which i was yeah, really proud of him just for going through that process on his own and doing it. But he was like, uh, Dad, should I buy some Bitcoin? And I was like and I said, no, you don't need to do it at the moment. You, you stay in your liquid cash. To be honest, when I die, you get on my Bitcoin anyway. So don't worry about that for now. Just like just focus, focus on earning money. But he was like he would like push me on it. It's like, but Dad, if you really believe in it, shouldn't I have some? I was like, okay, fair enough. So he said, like he said, What why is it? He wanted to know why I cared about Bitcoin. And I said well, you know what, Connor? like understanding money, understanding economics is quite difficult. There's a lot to understand about the macro economy, the micro economy, how businesses work, you know, really, really complex uh, systems, these financial systems. And I've also been doing this deep dive. I don't know if you know, but I've been like doing this background into Mnuchin. And whilst I've been looking into Mnuchin, I've been like looking at all these different regulated bodies. And I just said, it's really complex. And I said, but the really cool thing about Bitcoin, Connor. Is there's only two things you really need to know. There's only going to be 21 million Bitcoin. And every four years, the amount that is uh, released in the block rewards halves. That's it. That's all you need to know. Yeah. That's, that's it. That's Bitcoin. It's that simple. And he's like, why is that important? I said, because rather than having a few guys in a room trying to figure out how the economy should work for millions and millions of people, you've got one set of rules that everyone else has to adapt to. And because of that, the incentive is on you to make it work for you, rather than a few people in the room trying to work for millions. And that kind of simple, simple explanation worked for him, because he he came back to me and he said, okay, I get it. So so that he's like, then life is about my choices. And I'm like, you, you fucking nailed it. And he's 16.
0: Bam. And, you know, sometimes I I find your best questions in this space don't come from adults. They actually come from the younger population, like you're describing there, because- they're always going the first principles. They're, they're asking the questions that get to the root of why it is important. If there's one thing that I would have added to what you were saying, you're, you're talking about there's only 21 million coins and the supply that's getting dropped in the market gets cut in half. The, the, the last thing that I would add is not only does it cut it in half, but the protocol ensures that the people that are mining it stay profitable. And for a, a young kid, that's probably not going to sink in real well. But I think for adults, when they hear that, so many of them forget that the difficulty adjustment is what allows the four-year halving cycle to work. Because mm-hmm. if you're a miner, and, and the example I was talking to Stefan Lavera last night, and the example that I was saying was, imagine we were talking about gold miners. And tomorrow morning, they wake up, and they literally collect half as much gold as they collected the day before. Well, the problem that they're going to run into is most are not going to be able to stay profitable at that point before profitable long enough until the price starts to run and realize that supply cut. So imagine that same scenario where the people that are mining it and they're only getting half as much, but they're able to mine it at a speed that gets incrementally faster so that they actually start catching back up to the margins. Thinking of it as a business, they're able to start capturing the margins that they were just very recently, even though the supply was cut in half. And that's the part that Mm. I think so many people who are looking at it just don't even understand that. A, because they don't understand... The solvency of businesses that are that are in this. And when I say businesses that are in this, I'm talking about the miners. They are in this to capture margin, period. And their margins are not fat for a lot of them, unless they're getting their electricity for free, which I don't think is is the majority. So the fact that you have this two-week difficulty adjustment that's working in harmony with the four-year halving cycle, they're they're very far apart in time, so they seem like they're not coordinated, but they are 100% coordinated and they ensure that the miners stay profitable. People ask me all the time, they say, Preston, what would be a signal for you that this thing has fallen apart and that it's, it's a failed experiment? And for me, the thing that would signal that to me is if you see the miners start dropping out of this. That's sending a signal that they're not profitable anymore. There's no money to be made. There's no capture. But we're seeing the exact opposite of that. I mean, when I'm looking at this incoming difficulty adjustment for, that's happening next week, thing's coming in at like 50, plus 15%. All these miners are jumping into the market. We're only two epochs from the halving event, and this thing's coming in at a plus 15 It's insane.
1: Mm. Are you one of these people who believes in gold as well? Because one of the things I struggle with Bitcoin is, is, and I always challenge them, I always throw shit out there that people don't like, but I'm like, I'm not one of these people who says, oh, gold is just some yellow rock. It's like some, it's some archaic... who believes that yeah there may be a transitionary period where eventually Bitcoin is the most important asset to hold but I'm looking at the economy right now I'm looking at this potential meltdown we've had a 20% drop in I think it's GDP in the UK in a month in April right and I'm thinking I need to protect myself here and I, I'm not thinking put it all in Bitcoin I, I'm one of those people who's thinking right now it would be sensible to hold gold and Bitcoin are you the same or are you like fuck the gold
0: uh, <laughs> if I'll I'll put it this way. If Bitcoin didn't exist, I would be probably one of the biggest gold bugs in the world right now. And I would own gold miners. I'd own all that stuff. But Bitcoin does exist. And where I think gold is going to run into a problem is it's so slow to transact. So like if I have a bunch of gold and I want to sell it, the speed at which I can offload that is, I mean, you're, you're measuring in miles per hour. (laughs) Um, and maybe days. So, and you are measuring it in days. You might even be measuring it in months, depending on which country you're in. So, my concern is, throughout history, when you go through a currency crisis, it's all about how fast can you get into whatever the new currency is, or into some type of sound money. Call it gold. That's what it all comes down to. So, if you're half in the sell stocks, wait for a two or three days of clearance of transaction, then swapping that over into some other exchange, then buying gold and waiting for it to arrive at your house, only the, to look out your left window and see Bitcoin go meteoric 150% in a few months and say, oh crap, I got to get rid of this gold because I need to own that thing that looks like a rocket ship. Like That's my concern with gold is I think it's going to perform mm-hmm. great relative to the stock market. I think it's going to perform exemplary relative to the bond market. I think it's going to keep pace with, it's going to probably outpace most commodities uh, because they're not going to have the demand signal that they've had historically, at least in the short interim period when a lot of this is going down. But relative to Bitcoin, it's going to be a travesty. A I mean, dude, when I plot the value of gold in Bitcoin over the, since 2012, it's down 99.96 percent. So how do I think it's? Yeah, no, perform? I get that,
1: but like, I, I mean, I get that, but I think like I think everything compared to Bitcoin in the early years is performed poorly, and 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 I do think per- perhaps you're right, like over the next like five, ten, twenty years. But I also think there's some there's some risks with Bitcoin, which makes it a little bit sensible to just keep gold on the radar. Like, for example, we still don't know if Bitcoin becomes a threat that someone like Minuchin will come on hard on Bitcoin. We don't know if the US government will be like, well, this, we can't control this Bitcoin. It's a bit risky for us. We, we might have to regulate the shit out of it. We, that's the thing I think we don't know. And I was just thinking there's certain risk aspects with Bitcoin that might, might mean it makes sense just to hold a little bit. Like, a, you know, when people talk about a, a balanced portfolio, it makes sense to own a property for me. You know, my property will perform terribly compared to Bitcoin, but it makes sense to hold one.
0: Peter, I think you bring up amazing points. And I completely agree with you that for anybody that's stepping into Bitcoin and just saying like, this is going to be it no matter what, everything else is dead. That's, that can be an extremely, extremely risky place to be. My, when, going back to your argument about them confiscating or how are they going to respond to it or how are they going to regulate it? I think gold faces all those same problems. I mean, historically, you go back um and you might even argue that their ability to enforce it is even stronger with gold than it is with Bitcoin because you know, boating accidents and all sorts of things that people can say, um I don't have my keys or I lost it or whatever. I, with gold, if they have it in a safety deposit box or whatever that they that they've hey, this person purchased 10 million dollars of gold, well let's go over to their house and look for where maybe holes were dug in their backyard, I don't know it's it's a really difficult question, and it and when you're dealing with what we're about to to experience in my humble opinion, there is no right answer to know how you should be positioned with hundred percent clarity because there's no way to predict how policy and government actors are going to respond to the things that are playing out. I I was talking with uh Jeff Booth just in a private conversation and I I proposed an idea to him. I said, "Jeff, do you kind of feel like just taking the whole argument and flipping it on its head? So these central bankers need something. Like they clearly know that the ship is sinking and it's it's sinking in a major way." So and when we look at the rioting and the fact that we got people literally taking over cities here in the United States, like anarchists taking over cities here in the, in the U.S., like if I'm a central banker, I'm very concerned. I'm thinking, my God, are they coming for me next? And once they finally figure out the, the farce that's that's been in place for so long. So maybe, and let's just literally do a 180 on this. Maybe they need Bitcoin. Maybe their opinion shifts to, hey, this is the only thing that can save the global economy. So we need to let this, maybe they start championing the idea. And when I told Jeff that, he kind of smirked. He says, I think that's, that could totally happen, Preston. I think that could totally happen. But who, who knows?
1: Well, I've always thought, I mean, I, I always assume that some government somewhere must, must be loading up on bitcoin even a little bit like you it'd be stupid not to right it'd be stupid not to be looking at bitcoin and thinking we should load up a little bit but any government that has it is 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 secretly building that kind of backup bitcoin for the for, for the government like the, the day they announce that the price goes parabolic the price does go parabolic so like i'm i'm with you on that i don't know it just depends on I don't know. I think there's lots of risk factors, but listen, look, I agree with you generally speaking. I mean, look, we spoke before we started. You know, I always want to think of a, a good topic to hang hang a show to, and I do believe you know, it's now is Bitcoin's time. I mean, it's it's a really fucking weird time. I, I, like a lot of my, um, yeah, you know, I would say I don't know how many of my shows you've listened to, but my my show's been like an evolution of my own evolution of my own thinking with regards to everything. You know, three years ago I was. Stockholm syndrome, believed in the state, right? Didn't think of any other option. Never heard of libertarianism. Didn't know anything about Bitcoin apart from being something you could buy drugs on the internet with. Every four years you vote, you go to work, you pay your tax, you live your life. That that, that was my thing. And then, you know, discovering Bitcoin's upended everything. And now we're at this time where, you know, when people used to say, oh, Bitcoin fixes this. I was like, oh, shut the fuck up. What are you want about? It doesn't fix this. But actually, the more I look into things, the more I look into how how the root of all problems seems to be with money and we're kind of living through something i didn't think we'd ever live through i kind of thought the world had settled right wars wars were now proxy wars you know we're never going to see a world war they'll just be fought in proxy wars you know we we've, we've got agrarian states but you know what we 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 get to go to work we get to go on holiday we get to live our lives blah 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 but but and something like a currency crisis is what happened in venezuela which i went to was zimbabwe and then, um someone did a tweet storm the other week, and they were they were showing what was happening in the uh stock market, and they were saying, "This is the start of a currency collapse. These are all the signs of a currency collapse and in preparation for the show, I went through your feed, and you you're saying we're we're living through a currency collapse. You believe that right
0: absolutely so here's the thing that i if there's one handoff that I could tell people to to watch, so I'm a huge, huge fan of Ray Dalio he influenced the way I think. Uh, about the economy for years at this point. He has a video, and the video is called How the Economic Machine Works. It's a 30-minute video. I'm telling you right now, if you went to college and you got a degree in economics, you will learn more on this 30-minute video than you probably learned throughout your entire degree. This is is an absolute must-watch video that Ray himself narrates. And Ray's net worth is $16 billion during the 2008-2009 crisis when the rest of the market was down negative 60%. Ray was up 9% in the green. Like this dude knows what the hell he is doing. So he he made this video and he's written a bunch of books. I, one of the really famous books for me is Big Debt Crises. It explains all of this. So Ray uh, has been talking about this for Decades, which is a large credit cycle. So you, you have everyone's accustomed to business cycles that last seven to 10 years. That's the big mistake that a lot of people are making in the market right now is they think that this is just another business cycle that we're getting ready to experience. Maybe we're seeing a top, it's going to collapse like it always does or always has in, in previous decades. Well, the thing that they're missing is this business cycle that we're experiencing is just a little... Bump in a much larger business cycle that's an eighty-year cycle, and you can you can graphically see this eighty-year cycle when you just zoom out and you look at interest rates. So if if you would go to the ten-year Treasury bond yield, uh, and you'd look at the last eighty years the The slope of it would look like this big giant rise like a mountain that you were climbing for the first 40 years and then you'd see the yields go straight down for the next 40 years so like if you go back to 1981 and you look at the 10-year treasury, it was at 16 percent ever since that point in time, it has just progressively gone down 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 and now it's at zero percent when you hit the zero percent rate globally collectively you're you're at an end game. Because now you're actually in a position where people would rather go take their money out of the bank, put it in underneath their bed or in a safety deposit box, because they're going to get a higher return than if they left it in the bank with negative yields. So I would tell you, without getting into a lot of detail of these large credit cycles, watch Ray Dalio's video. It's called How the Economic Machine Works. It will literally blow your mind when you're watching this. And and it's going to be like this aha moment where you're like, I understand why these Bitcoiners are so crazy. But the, the big piece to this is we're now at the end game of this big, giant debt cycle. And that's when the currencies... Oh, well,
1: yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. It's, it's funny you should say that because I saw Rao Powell again. He tweeted yesterday, he tweeted a chart, and he's put, bond yields are about to sound the fire alarm for the insolvency phase at the end of the hope phase. Keep an eye on this. And I was like holy shit this sounds terrible, <laughs> and like the chart he's got the chart, like the what is it point point three two three percent so we're approaching zero
0: yeah well in here's another thing I think very few people understand so buffett he's been saying this oh my God his whole entire life that the value of everything comes down to the interest rates so think of think of the interest rates as gravity. So you're accustomed to the gravity that we've been experiencing our whole life. There's no variance in it. But imagine if we would wake up tomorrow and gravity was twice as strong. Okay? That would be that would be like interest rates going up. Okay? To a business. And so like you'd be walking around the house, you know, I've I have I have a friend that's an astronaut that I've known for years and you know, he said once I came back from space and I was sitting there you know, once I got off the spacecraft, I felt like I was like, drugged on narcotics because it was so hard for me just to walk down the flight line. Like, I felt nauseated. I felt like it was, like, it was so hard because he literally left zero gravity and he came back to 1G that he was pulling permanently here on, on Earth. You get in a, you know, I've been fortunate enough to fly some, some fighter jet, like an F 16. I've flown an F 16. When I did that, and I pulled six Gs, let me tell you, it felt like my guts were ready to explode. When a business goes through higher interest rates, that is what it's like to them. When they go through lower interest rates, it's the exact opposite. So when the Fed and all these central bankers step in, and they're lowering interest rates for 40 years straight, well... Thirty-nine years straight, because it's been since 1981 that they've continued the low interest rates. That's like them saying, "We're just going to keep putting this person further and further out in the orbit and just make it as easy as pie for them to do business." So, if you've experienced that for your entire existence as a business, you know the, the muscle memory of all these executives leading these companies—they don't even know what it's like for interest rates to go up. They don't need the plan. They don't even think to plan for such a thing. Okay. And now all of a sudden, you're about to see the currency break. Well, guess what that's going to do? It's going to make that entire thing blow up. People are not prepared for it. They have no idea. Like, how are they possibly going to come back to Earth and start experiencing 1G after they've been in space for, for 40 years? You know, it's nuts. It's nuts.
1: Next up, I talk to Preston more about Bitcoin and the current global social and economic situation. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors. So first up, we have Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. But why? Why do I say this every week? Well, firstly, and most importantly, their world-class security makes them the most trusted cryptocurrency exchange in the market. And with their 24-7, 365 customer support, you can be assured they're going to help you with any issues you have, wherever you are and whoever you are. Outside of that, they have the most comprehensive suite of tools available for buying Bitcoin at Kraken.com. It could not be easier to sign up and start trading. They also have a beautiful mobile first app, so you can buy Bitcoin on the go. With their margin trading futures and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. Find out more at Kraken.com or download the app, which is available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. And lastly, this week, but never least, is the future of Bitcoin and financial services. It is the amazing BlockFi. Have you checked out their new mobile app yet? I've been telling you about this for a few weeks now. It really, really nailed it with this one. Everything that you expect from BlockFi packed into your phone. It is quick and easy to sign up so you can get started in just a few minutes, allowing you to earn interest, borrow USD, and instantly access your portfolio. You can also open up a BlockFi interest account, of which I'm a customer of. I do love receiving my interest every month. You can earn money on your Bitcoin and also using your Bitcoin as a collateral, you can take out a USD loan. The app enables funds to be transferred directly from a crypto wallet into your BlockFi account and they've got so much more stuff coming up between now and the end of the year. I cannot wait to tell you about some of the products that they are working on. If you're interested in checking out BlockFi, I do recommend you do your own research. Then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. But there's been currency collapses before. But, I guess what's concerning or what I'm trying to think about right now is that we we have a global economy now. every market is interlinked. any of us a year ago could get on a plane and go anywhere in the world pretty cheap as well you know we we're all connected on the internet, we're all connected by media via politics, like we are one big global community all going through this together. At once, when it happens specifically in one country, you know other countries can dive in and support that economy. You know, the World Bank can put money in. I'm assuming I'm not somebody who really understands stuff like that, but you know I've seen that. I've seen the European Central Bank help Greece and Cyprus when they went through their crisis, which did affect people. You know when their banks were looted by the government. But I I can't get my head around how this happens at a global level. And also what I'm starting to think I'm assuming you're the same. Like and I talk to Travis Kling a lot. And he was ringing the alarm bells a good year and a half ago to me, and he was he was aligning a lot of things he was aligning what's going on with media, what's going on in politics the the move to extreme left and right. He would throw Epstein in there or Weinstein he was saying all this shit is all coming together like a melting pot, and it's almost like it's almost like it's written in the stars that we had to have this covid situation that put everyone on lockdown to add the extra bit of tension. And now everything is like, I've got it here. And I had my prepared questions. My, actually, my first question for you, I didn't even read it. It's like, everything is fucking fucked right now. <laughs> like, what the hell's going on? But everything's happening at one time. So do you, I, I'm assuming you think this is all linked, right?
0: Absolutely. Completely agree with you. And, and if I was going to define why. So when you have an inflationary monetary policy, what, what does that do from an incentive structure? To the participants in that, in that system. And what it does is it incentivizes productivity it incentivizes investment and it incentivizes technological growth. That's what it does. It pulls productivity from the future into today is what an inflationary monetary policy. Now, when you say, okay, well, then who's been doing inflationary monetary policy and how long have they been doing it? And when you look at the fact that the entire globe was polarized by a a very important event in history, and that's Bretton Woods back in the 1940s, where the dollar got pegged to gold, and then every other currency got pegged to the dollar. So there was all this dependency with the dollar being the crux of that dependency between gold and all the other currencies. So when the U.S. comes off the gold standard in 71... Because we were implementing an inflationary monetary policy, even though we were on a gold standard, which was implemented through an adjustment of the money multiplier, we basically had uh, from the 40s up until the 70s and even into the 80s an inflationary monetary policy, even though we were on a on a gold standard. Then, after we come off the gold standard, we continued to have an inflationary monetary policy up till today. You literally have 80 years of this policy where you're creating technological growth. You're incentivizing investment. You're incentivizing people to get the money out the door. And most importantly, you're incentivizing pulling the future into today. So what does that do when you compound that? It's not linear. It's not linear at all. It's exponential when you do that for that many years where you're compounding the... So Jeff Booth, who I'm a massive fan of, he talks about this in his book, The Price of Tomorrow. And... um. This is a great example. He says, if you're going to take a piece of paper and you would fold it in half and you would do that 50 times, how thick would the piece of paper be? And a lot of people will say, oh, it'd be like, you know, maybe as high as my computer or whatever. But all the answers, people cannot think in exponentials. They think linearly. They, they can't understand what exponential impact this has. The piece of paper literally goes to the sun from the surface of the earth to the sun and so what he's saying is going back to this idea of pulling productivity to the left through an inflationary monetary policy for that many decades, we're now at like fold 30 in folding this piece of paper and the distance is now jumping from like Venus to Mercury in the next fold, which is only a couple years because early on the folds are minuscule, right? Right. But now after you've been doing this for 80 years, the folds are starting to get really, really massive. And so every day and every year that goes by, you are not just pulling a little bit of date from the future into today, you're pulling massive amounts of dates from the future into today. And what's that, what that's doing is it's literally ripping the fabric of reality apart for us from an ability for the common person to keep up with the technological growth and the productivity that's being thrown into our economy that freaking can't handle it. That's what's happening.
1: Are are there any good sides to it though? Like, is there any defense of this in that, you know, have we accelerated development of drugs or medical equipment? Have we accelerated technology because of an inflationary policy? Can, is there any defense of it?
0: So it all depends on where you, where you sit. So if you're a billionaire and you've made tank loads of money, and you can afford all of these revolutionary things. Boy, I'd tell you it's been one hell of a ride. It's been a great thing, right? But if you're a person who's living in a tent in San Francisco and you have no idea how you got there, and I'm not saying that that some of these people have not worked for anything, and so they're in those positions. other people it's really, it becomes a blurred line, right? Of like how much of it is their fault versus how much of it is the system's fault. And and there's no right answer. And there's no definitive answer. All you can say is from a macro standpoint, those populations, which are prevalent, not just in the U S but all over the globe. Cause remember it was all tied to the dollar through Bretton woods. That's why you're seeing, that's why you're seeing social unrest everywhere at the same time is because it all comes back to the money and the policies that were dependent on the the money being all together, tied together. So it, to answer your question, it depends on where you sit. And I think the other important part to this is anytime you manipulate something, I don't care what it is, anytime you manipulate something, there's going to be a cost that's paid for it. You know, so going back to my, mm-hmm. my aero engineering days. When you do a lift calculation, on an, uh, when you're calculating the lift for an aircraft, uh, uh, an airfoil, anytime you, there is lift that's produced, there's, there's also drag that's produced. Okay. So then you have to do the, the, the math on how much drag is being produced for the lift that you're, how much cambers in the airfoil, all that kind of stuff. So what I would tell somebody is, what's the price that's about to be paid for all these policies? And there is going to be a price paid for all this especially if you step into a currency that becomes deflationary, okay? Because when you have a deflationary monetary policy, I don't know how anyone could deduce anything other than it's going to be the exact opposite of all the things that I just described, which is you're going to slow down investment. You're going to start pulling things the opposite direction opposed to pulling them from the future. Those... That's It's going to slow everything down. And to be quite honest with you, everything does need to be slowed down or else we're, we're going to cause so much social unrest between the the classes of society that it's it's going to get a little scary.
1: Well, yeah, and I've traveled. I don't know how much you know. I travel quite a lot with uh, what I do with both of my shows. And wherever I go, I'm mean, especially in the last year, I spent a bit of time in South America. I went to Chile. Uh, I was into Santiago during the riots there. I went to Bolivia. I've been to Venezuela. I'm watching the U.S. now. And there is a consistency in what the riots are about. I don't care what people say about domestic issues. It really always comes from inequality and opportunity. And it doesn't matter whether you believe in socialism or you think, uh, you think socialism the root of all evil. Pretty much every, every country is on a spectrum of socialism. We have we have a conservative government here, but we have the NHS, which is a which is a socialist policy. So there's always kind of socialist policies here, there, and everywhere. And people have some kind of expectation that they're part of a society, they're working, they're paying tax, they they want education, they want healthcare, they, they expect something from their political leaders. And you know, I love what the ANCAPs talk about. I love what the libertarians talk about. We don't live in that society right now. And the unrest that I've seen in Santiago, Chile is exactly the same as the unrest that I'm watching on the TV in the US right now. And I know the trigger, but actually I think most of the reason people are rioting isn't to do with that. It is the unrest, the inequality, and they're fed up with the police state, and they're fed up with government. They're just fed up of all the same bullshit. And I guess... I guess – I mean I tweeted earlier. I guess this year is the the, the great reset. Um, actually, before we go into I, – I do want to ask you about something because you talked about inflation, deflation there. And one of your tweets there um, about a week ago stood out to me. You had a bit of a rant. I can't take this misuse of terminology anymore. Inflation, deflation. Like I've always been taught deflation is bad. Deflation is terrible for the economy. Do, do you agree? Do you have a – what's your – Yeah, view I mean
0: deflation's terrible for the state. okay. <laughs> it, de- again, that's right. it depends on on where you sit. So if you're a government bureaucrat, the last thing that you can take is deflation because then that's basically tying your hands behind your back. And now you're not able to allocate capital into your district and all of those things. So when when you understand that point of view, you can understand why it's heavily taught or heavily influenced that it's taught that we should have inflationary monetary policy is because if the, if the interest rates are going down, you can keep allocating even more and more money. You can print more and more money into your district. But from a citizen standpoint, if, if I work and I receive a dollar and the dollar is more valuable tomorrow, you, you definitely aren't going to hear a complaint out of me like at all. Or anybody else, for that matter.
1: (laughs) It's probably it's probably probably because you save as well, though, right? You're sensible. Like a lot of my friends are going to be absolutely screwed if we go into a deep recession, perhaps depression. Because I would say, I would say, eight out of ten friends, as a good estimate, probably have about a month or two months in reserve. Right? They're not the kind of people who have a a year, two years, three years. Right? So it's a very scary scenario for them. Anyone who's saving. I you know, said so anyone who saves money, it's good for them. And also, I don't, I've never bought into this idea, well, during a deflationary period, you're not going to buy something because you think it might be cheaper in the future. I mean, perhaps on a house, perhaps if I was going to move house, I might delay that because it's such a big purchase. And if house prices drop 10%, great. I'm not going to not buy a TV because I think it might be 20 bucks cheaper or even 100 bucks cheaper in a couple of months. People, I don't think
0: that happens. People have been conditioned. So when you study how your brain works and you get into how your neurons get conditioned just like if you're doing machine learning and you're and you're conditioning a deep neural net to to be able to identify cat pictures right <laughs> your brain works the exact same way from an early age that's why they say you know like the first 6 years of your life the is so instrumental to a person's moral development because their neurons are getting conditioned based on the actions of their parents and what they're observing of how their parents act so it's it's an incredibly important period in your development. So think about it from a collective standpoint across the United States. Every single person's brain and neurons in their brain have been conditioned that if they don't spend the dollar today, it's going to be worth less tomorrow. That that conditioning has now happened for 80 years. And then it's been handed down from generation to generation. So undoing that conditioning that neurological conditioning that money becomes more worthless over time has created this incentive structure where well god why would i have any savings why would i you know why would i hold on to that the money's going to be more worthless tomorrow and and most people don't have a lot of some extra money that they can put behind they're just living paycheck to paycheck based on where we're at and how competitive because that's the other big piece to this is when you incentivize that much investment what you're really doing is you're incentivizing extreme competition Extreme competition. And I would say we're at peak extreme competition after 80 years of an inflationary monetary policy. And so it's extremely difficult for people to even find any margin on on a personal level for them to sock away into savings. And then if they do save it, it's getting debased. So you got all those things that have conditioned people to act in the way that they're acting. But if if you now have a currency that steps in and does the exact opposite of that, and it's deflationary. You're going to slowly unravel that conditioning, and you're actually going to polarize it in the opposite direction overall. If if it continues to be sustained over a long period of time, that, at least that's which, my belief.
1: Which which Bitcoin does right?
0: Which, which is what Bitcoin does? Which,
1: well, yeah, and we'll be saying what Bitcoin did in the future.
0: And and <laughs> and this is another thing I think to think about, Peter, is like you're, you're saying your friends. Well, if we start going to a Bitcoin standard, and your friends work for a business that actually is profitable and that is adding value to society, well, they're going to start demanding payment for their for their labor in Bitcoin. And as they're receiving that Bitcoin and it's going up in value, and, and if once you get to a full adoption phase, I don't think you're going to be seeing it going up in value at a breakneck pace. You might see it going up in value by 4% annually or 5% annually or whatever. I don't know. I have no idea what that's going to be, but let's just say those are the numbers. People have an incentive to spend less; they really do.
1: Well, I mean, a lot of my friends, they they don't have an incentive to get in Bitcoin right now because they're not seeing like inflation is that death by a thousand cuts in a in a place like the UK and the US. It's not like no doubt it's not like Argentina or Venezuela where people have been through hyperinflationary events. But we are potentially heading towards people seeing that and and realizing they have to consider the value of their money. It was quite funny this week. I've been doing some research into um, a project in Africa and I found I didn't know this, uh, you might know this, but but um phone minutes are a store of value and a currency across Africa.
0: Yeah. That would make sense. And,
1: yeah, it blew my mind because 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 they have a kind of stable value compared to local currencies, which are um, which inflate due to you know, government corruption and just mismanagement of the economy in Africa. Like the um, Yeah, the phone minutes have become a real store of value there. And I guess that's what people have learned. They've learned that their money has no value. They've learned that the, the minutes have value. And I guess what will happen is, like I've learned Bitcoin has value, you have. I guess some people are going to have to go through that process. How do you think this all plays out then? Because it is a crazy time right now. You you think we're going through a currency collapse. Um the, the chart that somebody showed me was what happened in Venezuela where the stocks pumped as the currency collapsed. In nominal you terms. you highlighted that. Yeah, in nominal terms. You highlight you shared a chart from Matt Odell where he was saying where he was pricing the I think it was the S P in gold. And then you'll see what's happening in and, and I think the headline was stocks aren't pumping the dollar is. Like for someone like me who doesn't study the markets, what's going on here? And how do you think this plays out? I mean, is this some is this an emergency right now? Is this something over the next five to ten years? But like, what do you think? Oh, I, th-
0: I think that I think the coming two oh. y- two years are going to be quite fascinating, and I think a lot of it's going to come down to Bitcoin actually, just because of the timing of where we're at in the four year cycle, and I think you're going to see the price run, and I think you're going to see headlines like. You know, I could I could picture twenty twenty one like Time magazine's story of the year is is one thing and it's Bitcoin. I think that when you look at the countries that are gonna realize the value of Bitcoin first, it's gonna be the countries that are struggling the hardest today. They're the ones with the weakest currencies. So perfect example is Turkey. Like look at Turkey's currency. It's a disaster. Mm. When you look at the at the Turkish lira, Relative to bitcoin you 're already having a breakout and from a you know technical analysis kind of way and you 're looking at the chart and you 're looking at that pattern you 're saying, "My god, this thing is is going to be epic when you do that for every other currency that 's struggling right now in the world they 're seeing something similar so the first countries I think to become major adopters just by the sheer look of the of the chart patterns and the value proposition that it's already proposing to them they're going to be the first ones that come on board and start demanding this the the last country that i think is going to realize its value proposition is really kind of the strongest currencies in the world which i would tell you is the dollar which is dominating everything it's the people in the us i think are going to have probably the hardest time seeing it because they're going to be the last ones that that see quote unquote see it you know, you have some very smart people in the U.S. that that are absolutely going to see it. But I think, from a chart pattern relative to the the domestic currency, that's going to be one of the last places that you kind of see that break out. So it's going to happen slowly at first, and then all at once. And I kind of think this incoming cycle this this next seventy thousand blocks uh, are going to get quite interesting, really interesting.
1: Yeah, like a like like a virus from country to country it's gonna exactly. spread.
0: Exactly. You couldn't have said it any better.
1: Yeah, interesting. We well, look you you mix in a lot of traditional finance circles, especially with the show you make and the people you talk to. You're probably like like I am amongst my friends. You're like the Bitcoin guy amongst the circles you mix in. I mean look like, and you talk about Ray Dalio and he talks he talks about Bitcoin, without saying Bitcoin, I think sometimes <laughs> he's just like I, I read what he's saying, and I'm like, you're talking about Bitcoin, but he's he's not he, it's not like he's a Bitcoin believer. But the way he talks, it, it's almost like he's talking about Bitcoin. What are, what are the you know what are the detractors saying? The people who just don't get it. What what are the what are their kind of negatives? What are their arguments against it that you're seeing? That you're like, what are the common things you're having to debate with them about it?
0: Well, so from Ray's point of view i've heard him say hey it's got a lot of volatility to it um which you know having studied ray quite a bit he doesn't look at it in a single lens like that he's looking at it the 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 past return compared to the volatility <laughs> you know he's looking at the sharp ratio so it, it's when i hear him say those kind of things i'm kind of looking at it like okay uh huh is that really what you're doing or is that what, what we're saying here I think for him, he, if, if I was going to say, what is he missing? I don't think that he, if, if he doesn't own it, I think he doesn't understand what we were talking about earlier in the show, which is the four-year having, being in harmony with the two-week difficulty adjustment. So many people miss that. I can't tell you. I mean, if I talk to 100 people, there might be one person that gets that that. That, that, that link and that tether between those two pieces of the protocol are... The essence of what's driving the adoption curve. And it's in, and in my opinion, it's a, it's a time phase, time fused Trojan horse adoption curve that is by design so that it allows entrenchment into the existing financial rails. But uh going back to your question, what are they missing? Uh, let me tell you from like Warren Buffett's perspective. So Warren's just looking at equities and he's He's of the opinion, well, if the currency today is the dollar, the currency tomorrow is gold, the currency the next day is, is Bitcoin or it's, it's she shells or whatever, he doesn't care because his opinion is, is, the, is that the businesses that he owns, the equities that he owns are going to adopt whatever that currency is. And the thing that he's focused on is the enduring competitive advantage of the assets that sit on his balance sheet. If there's impairment on those assets, then he has concerns. So that's how he's looking at it. He's saying, "I don't understand the whole currency thing. I think it's something that's outside of my ability to have any type of like uh, reasonable projection of what's probable in the future." But I do understand equities, and so I'm going to continue to own those, and I'm going to focus on making sure that the assets aren't impaired through competitors. I think that's his big focus. And so, you know, people like to beat him up, and I think through the years, I think he's been somewhat quite reserved about how he expresses his opinion on bitcoin now charlie munger has not he's you know come out and said it's rat poison (laughs) and people who wrote it are idiots but you know charlie's 94 95 years old so you know if i'm 94 95 i'm I'm probably saying things that are more disparaging than that um but
1: (laughs) hey if i'm 94 95 i'm 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 amazed I, I got there.
0: You're all idiots.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't see me getting into the 90s. And, and, and you know, what's the incentive to change? Like, what's the incentive to change at 94, 95?
0: <laughs> well, and, and going back to what I was saying earlier about the conditioning of, of your brain. So these guys, you know, the first 40, 50 years of their life, they've really kind of come up with the model in their brain. Like their brain is functioning on what the model is for them. So stepping in at at age 90 when you have conditioned your brain to think that well the dollars never going to be uprooted like this is this is how you do investing it's just you you're asking for something that you're never going to receive out of a person who who that's just not their wheelhouse it's not what they that's not who they are they're they've only got a couple years left man
1: so one of the interesting things about talking about this with you Preston is it feels like with you, which gives me confidence. I always like it when a finance person talks like this. But you, you talk like there's an inevitability with Bitcoin taking over as a dominant currency.
0: Well, so I'm um, I'm a huge optimist, and it might not come through on my Twitter profile because I bash central banks all day long. But at the heart, I am a, a super optimistic person, very optimistic person. And when I look at what's happening in the world, it's it's I can see how people can view it as being a very scary time and a very concerning and confusing and terrible time. When I look at how can that, from an optimist standpoint, be cured and how can that be fixed, I really only come up with one solution. Because if we go back to another gold standard, let's say we go back and do another Bretton Woods. In my opinion, nothing is solved. Absolutely nothing is solved because, like I said earlier in the show, they were implementing an inflationary monetary policy under the gold standard. Whether people want to believe that or not, it doesn't matter because they were. So if we go back to the drawing board with all these nations and we cook up another, you know, with the SDR being the backed by gold and then everybody's pegging their money to the SDR or any of that crap, like we are gonna have more of the same of what we've experienced here in the last couple of years. It's not going away. So the optimist in me is saying Bitcoin will force a deflationary policy on the world, which will then help alleviate the stress between social classes. I don't see that relief coming in any other way other than Bitcoin today. So maybe it's, maybe it's me uh, being just an optimist of seeing a solution and hoping that that becomes the solution, but... You know, when I look at all the risks of like how it could be stopped and the fact that it's decentralized and the fact that nation states that have been a victim of this inflationary dollar dominance policy are going to be the ones that demand it and demand the enforcement of the protocol. To me, it kind of seems like it is a little inevitable.
1: Well, so to build on from that, then you've obviously studied Bitcoin a lot. What do you think of the blind spots we have, or the areas of that people don't really consider too much? Because you've got some very hardcore Bitcoiners, and and I, and I this is where I battle with some of them, um, especially the real kind of anarchist types. Because I think we sometimes need a bit a little bit more kind of practical reality, a little bit more understanding the incentives of just normal people. You know, most people aren't privacy conscious, ANCAPs who hate the state right maybe people have, have got stockholm syndrome or maybe over time they, they will change but like some of the things I look at and some of the things I think about is that I just think having full privacy with Bitcoin it's really hard to do and I just think some people can't be bothered I think I think a lot of people won't be bothered to run a node a lot of the things like privacy and nodes need to just be abstracted away I just think people just need to be use it without thinking about stuff like that I think some people don't want to be their own bank my dad definitely does not want to be his own bank he definitely does not want to money work his own money he definitely wants somebody to do it for him he wants to not worry about that um, I think some people f- I think perhaps some of the ideas about working with inside reg with regulators is a better idea than fighting them I think um, I also think like this idea that Bitcoin can I think Bitcoin as a whole can help alleviate uh, inequalities within social classes like you've said but like right now I don't think a Bitcoin is a solution for a poor poor person on an individual level because if they buy Bitcoin at the wrong time they could just lose money um, and I saw that when it was in Venezuela like there's an absolute risk to somebody losing even t- dropping 10% of value in a week that's the difference between maybe having a meal every day and having a meal on five days right so I think there's a whole bunch of blind spots that aren't talked about enough uh, or debated enough or there's just like this kind of like, I don't know, this kind of belief that's a little bit, a little bit in fantasy land sometimes. And I get in trouble talking about this, but what about you?
0: So I really like these points because I agree with you on pretty much all of them. Um, okay, cool. But here's where I would tell you that I think Bitcoin can still solve all these things, even though all those things are true. So
1: that's all right. I agree though.
0: Yeah. And so when, when when you think about what Bitcoin's solving, all it's doing is it's stepping in and, and holding central banks accountable. It's forcing them to not debase their currency in order to universally tax everybody at will and as much as they want without them having any type of voice in that. So when, when you have this peg that steps in and forces them, because... It, that's the problem with gold is it can be so easily manipulated that it's this mirage of a peg when it's really not. This, on the other hand, there, there is no getting around it, especially if an individual can take possession of it and run their own node and do all those things that the hardcore people are, are going to continue to do. Central banks cannot get around that. So if the central banks now start being held accountable, if let's just take the US as an example. If the Fed wants to go out there and they want to continue to debase the dollar at the pace that they've been debasing it, and another country does not want to do that, they actually want to start becoming fiscally responsible because they know that there's this other peg out there that forces them to be accountable or can force them to be accountable. And some countries are going to have leadership that that look at the world this way, What's going to end up happening in the long game is the countries that don't force themselves to be fiscally responsible by obeying this peg, their buying power as a nation is going to get obliterated. Their ability to defend themselves is going to get obliterated. All of those things that go along with being on an individual level irresponsible, but now... Uh, applied at the at the nation level is going to happen with something like Bitcoin because at the root and at the foundational layer you now have something that's actually pegging everything um so does it matter whether you know my dad can go out there and run a full node and take possession of his keys and oh, I lost my keys there goes my entire net worth like no that that i don't think those things have to happen for Bitcoin to be successful in the long run and uh, what it's doing. And I think that in the future, five, 10 years from now, you're going to have developers that are finding ways to make all of those things way more accessible for the individual. Mm-hmm. But uh, today they're definitely not relative to, you know, the capacity of some people in order to do those kind of things.
1: When you sit back and think about it, you know, if you're right and uh, I'm right about the things that I hope, and we do end up with this Bitcoin-based economy. When you think about whether Satoshi was a single person or two or three people, I mean, I don't. I, I think it's a single person, but even if it is two or three people, what they've created and the impact they've had—it's—it's it's really quite fucking incredible, right? And got nearly everything right from the outset.
0: Yeah, I think that. You're definitely dealing with some sort of savant, but on a level that it's not just in one field of study. It's it's pretty much in like all fields of study, which makes you kind of think, well, then there had to have been more than one person because no one person could possibly have this much foresight and this much expertise in this many areas. Uh, I mean, even even from a branding and marketing standpoint, the fact that Satoshi... Only made it twenty-one million coins, but had ten to the negative eighth units on to the right of the decimal. From a branding marketing standpoint, is I mean, you could argue it's it's a five hundred billion to a trillion dollar marketing strategy <laughs> with the amount of buzz that it creates when the price goes to over two hundred thousand, and it goes to over a hundred thousand. Can you imagine if you were going to put a price tag on the marketing that that's going to create?
1: Well, Dan Hill talks about it. He talks about the four-year halving creating this viral loop.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's just so many pieces to it that... And I mean, that's just one teeny tiny little facet that in my opinion is just totally overlooked, but is sheer brilliance when you dig down into the deeper layers of that one tiny little piece of Bitcoin. Um, the I I think... The fact that, in my opinion, Moore's Law was built into the incentive structure because people that are stepping into the market with new rigs are able to capture four times as many coins as people four years before them. Um, and so you don't have this first mover advantage for pe- for new entrants that are mining, which then drives profitability and drives the continue hash rate pump, which helps protect the uh, uh, bidding of the price after uh, having event like all of these things dude it's it's beyond comprehension for us mere mortals you know like it's just it's mind-blowing
1: yeah like it, it it blows my mind and I, I consider myself just quite a simple character who's uh who's not an economist is not a technical person who, but it still blows my mind that it's, it's like something out of a movie that's been created here that, that can change the world and this mysterious character, we still don't know who he is. We still might not find out who it is, who's managed to have such an impact. And you talked about time. It could be like, this could be time person of the year.
0: Well, in, in going back to one of the, I think one of the big themes we've been talking about during the show, which is this idea of what does inflationary monetary policy creates? It pulls productivity. It pulls technology to the left of where it would originally have occurred if there was no manipulation in the currency at all. So maybe bitcoin's something from 50 years from now that would have like if we didn't have all these policies and we weren't pulling productivity to the left. This is something that would have been discovered 50 years from now, but we're experiencing it right now because of those policies. And what's fascinating is the policies have have you know when you look at a yin yang and you you look at the black and the white and then there's the dot. That's the seed of opportunity to in invert to take the thing in the exact opposite direction, that seed of opportunity is in any type of action, so like if we're if if you go into martial arts when anytime somebody conducts an attack on you there's a seed of opportunity in that attack for you to counter it and to throw them to the floor and so the, I guess for me how when i 'm looking at all of this it's just so fascinating because the thing that is is creating this destruction, which is the the decades long of inflationary monetary policy, has actually sowed the seed of opportunity to counter it. And I think that counter is Bitcoin. And and that technology was pulled, cleared way out. I think it would exist way out to the right. But because of all this incentive to produce and, and build these amazing technologies, it's been pulled into today. And here it is. And, uh, boy, it's going to be exciting to see what happens here in the coming year.
1: I know, man, what a time to be alive. Look, we're, we're pretty much, we're very similar age, a couple of years between us. And I cannot think of a year like this year. I, I cannot remember a year where so much happened. There's like events, like it's moments in time, like when nine eleven happened, just, I remember just watching the news going, what the fuck? Or when the, and specifically the second Gulf War, I remember watching that and thinking, Jesus But, like, right now, so many things right now in this year are happening all at the same time. I'm assuming, as I get old and I become a grandfather at some point, like, it's one of those things you're going to talk about, look, in 2020, all this crazy shit happened. We had these lockdowns. We had these lockdowns because of uh this virus that spread around the world and then currencies collapsed and governments were collapsing and people were there were uprisings across the and i imagine this year i don't know i mean i don't know like you think it might this a lot of stuff have happened over the next couple of years but i i've got a feeling 2020 is going to be a year and it's in some ways it's funny as well the fact that it is 2020. it's like if you were going to write this year if you were going to write something in the future the year 2020. You'd write a song about the year 2020. You'd, it's like it's got that name to it, right? But I think it's going to be one of those years that in the history books. We look back and say, "What a fucking crazy year! Like everything changed."
0: The Mayans must have had a, a rounding error in their calculations from two, <laughs> 2012 or whatever it was. But it, yeah. you know, Peter, I would say this, and maybe this is the optimist in me coming out. Um, yeah, typically, when you have, I, I know from participating in financial markets for decades. When I have the most pain, it's almost immediately followed by a significant jump or bounce or, or reversion to the mean. And so I agree with you. 2020 is like no year I'd ever seen and by a lot. So maybe 2021 is going to be the mean reversion of that. We'll see
1: all right man well look we can carry on but we're, we're sometimes you get to that point where you feel like there's a there's like a natural conclusion um <laughs> uh, although I, I look i'd love to do this again i'd love to do it in person I, I come to the states a lot we should but um i, I feel like that's a that's a good uh, good that's a good, good rounding point for this show you've obviously got a cool show of your own you tell people how to follow what you're doing how to find you etc
0: hey hit me up on twitter because i really enjoy interacting with people it's just my first and last name preston pish all on the uh, Smushed together. Uh, I have a podcast that goes by the handle "We Study Billionaires." Really, the premise of the show is we just try to find anybody who's a self-made billionaire that made a bunch of money in the markets. Study what books they've read. Try to pick apart their approach. Like if you're a macro guy, you're a momentum person, value investor, whatever. We just try to study all those different people to kind of understand their investing approach. And we enjoy doing the show. I really appreciate you you having me on, Peter. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you.
1: Yeah, I loved it, man. It's been been one I've wanted to do for a while. I've seen you in the background thinking, I've got to get Preston on at some point. But I'd never had the chance to meet meet you. And uh, But like, I, I'm really glad we did this. It's a great show. Uh, I wish you the best. And I'm sure we're going to do this again in the future.
0: You as well, sir.
1: All right, man. We'll look back in a year. Take care, Preston. All right, then. What did you think of that one? Bit of a monster show, right? I love hearing how bullish on Bitcoin people like Preston are, similar to Dan Tapero and Rao Powell, these typically more traditional finance people think about Bitcoin. It's, uh, yeah, I think it really makes me feel bullish that there are people from the traditional world who see the value in Bitcoin. And like, I know it's not everyone, I know there are traditional finance people who just don't get it. But, you know, that's going to be their loss. And as Preston said, I think the next one or two years is going to be a very interesting time for Bitcoin and society as a whole. As I said in the intro, there's some weird stuff going on, and, and some of it is scary. I'm personally trying to take the best from it, trying to look at my life and see the things I can do to to make sure that, however we come out the back end of all this craziness, that my life is in a in better position and I'm prepared financially. Uh, and I do hope all of you are all okay, because you know, these are testing times you know, mentally and physically and in so many different ways. So very interesting times. I'm going to be keeping a close eye on the markets. So I'm going to keep talking to people like Preston because I think it's really useful to hear from them. As I said, if you've got any questions about this, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at did.com. You also might want to check out my other show, Defiance. I'm doing a series right now on Stephen Mnuchin. That's available at defiance.news. And as ever, if you want to reach out to me, do get in touch. I do pretty much reply to everyone. Outside of that, have a great week and I hope to see you soon.